there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Thanks for tuning in to the Writes for Festivals podcast where we bring you some of the best sessions from regional writing festivals all over New South Wales and beyond. We are so proud to be bringing you sessions from the first inaugural Story Fest 2019 in Milton. This session is Unforgettable Settings with Candace Fox, Robert Hollingworth and Karen Vigors, hosted by Inga Simpson. Before we get started, we'd like to give a massive shout out to the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group, who have generously given us permission to use their Welcome to Country as our theme music for the StoryFest episodes. We feel honoured for the privilege. Welcome everybody to this session, um, Unforgettable Settings, and we're in a pretty unforgettable setting. Privileged to host um, our three writers here today. Um, Karen Vigors, Robert Hollingworth and Candice Fox. Uh, my name is Inga Simpson. I'm a local writer as well. I'd also like to acknowledge that we are meeting on Maramarang Country, which is part of the UN Nation, uh, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. So, formal introductions. Karen Vigors was born in Melbourne and grew up in Hillsville and the Dandenong Ranges. Uh, she studied vet science at Melbourne University and practiced as a vet before moving to Canberra to complete a PhD in wildlife health at ANU and has worked with a wide range of uh, native and domestic animals. Karen lives in Canberra but uh, if you've read her novels you know that uh, she travels a bit and, and likes wild outdoor landscapes. Uh, the Orchardist's Daughter is Karen's fourth novel. Her previous novels are The Stranding, Light, The Lightkeeper's Wife and The Grass Castle. And Karen's books have been translated into French, Italian, Norwegian, Slovenian, Spanish. But The Lightkeeper's Wife and all of her work has enjoyed a particular success in France, which we might come to later. I suspect it's got a bit, about, a bit to do with the setting. Um... Robert Hollingworth is an award-winning visual artist as well as a writer, um, a former winner of the Sulman Prize and has held more than 40 solo exhibitions in Australia and overseas. Um, a strong interest in ecology and the natural environment. Again, a good place to be. His previous books include Nature Boy, They Called Me the Wild Man, uh, which was shortlisted for the 2010 South Australian Premier's Literary Awards. Such a mouthful. Smythe's Smythe? Yeah, Theory of Everything, um, which should sort you out for some time. And so it was, an artist's book of short stories and illustrations, The Colour of the Night, and A Blank Canvas is his latest and sixth book. Uh, it began in its life as a short story. Uh, Robert has also written essays and art reviews. The, um, in 2015, Robert moved from Melbourne to the local area, very local, where he paints and writes full-time. And Candace Fox was born and bred in Bankstown in Sydney's West. (laughs) (laughs) Strong supporter in the front row. (laughs) (laughs) The middle child of a large family. Uh, After a brief stint in the Navy, she turned... surprised as you are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She turned her hand to academia and taught high school through two undergraduate and two postgraduate degrees. That is also a mouthful. Um, she's pretty good at crafts, an animal lover and wine drinker, in good company here, uh, and living in Sydney. Hades, Candice's first novel, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut in 2014, and the sequel, Eden, won the Ned Kelly for Best Crime Novel in 2015. Candice was only the second author to win those back-to-back. She's also the author of the best-selling Fall, um, Crimson Lake and Redemption Point, which have all been shortlisted for Ned Kelly and David Awards. In 2015, Candace began collaborating with James Patterson. Uh, their first novel together, Never Never, set in the outback, was a bestseller here and went straight to number one on the New York Times bestseller mm. seller list. Uh, since then, they've written Black and Blue, 50-50, Liar Liar, Hush Hush, a bit of a thing. 
in the Harriet Blue series. Uh, her books are published in 15 languages, or they were at the time of the bio that I read. <laughs> to kick off, could I ask you to talk about your most recent books or series, um, in your case, Candice, and, and how you chose the setting? Was there a process? Did the setting come first or the book? How did that go? Oh, okay, sure. Um, my latest book was actually um, with James Patterson. That's Hush Hush. Um, but, I, you know, the setting was more important for me in my own last series, the Crimson Lake series set in Cairns. Um, and I suppose I started that series trying to figure out where I would run if the whole world hated me. Um, so the, the series is about a, a guy named Ted who is accused of a terrible sexual assault against a teenager and um, he lives in Sydney, he has a wife, he has a family, he has a job and he just has to go because he's public enemy number one. You know, I was going for a kind of a Dennis Ferguson vibe where the mob literally comes for you at your door. Um, and I thought I would run to Far North Queensland because I have lived there myself and it's just sort of, it's the kind of place where you think to yourself, if I leave my house for a week, I'm going to come back and it's going to be covered in rainforest and it's going to be things living in it. Like it's very wild and and for him, I suppose I wanted the idea that he could grow a new life there because it's so lush and everything. But a lot of the experiences he's had in the series I actually had living there, like he's a Sydney man so he doesn't really know how to deal with an enormous snake turning up on his porch Um and he rigs a, a, a an elaborate snake catcher with a, a broom, um, a hollowed out broom handle, and, and and all this kind of thing. And and I did that. And uh, you know, so um, yeah, that's that's how I chose that. Yeah. Um, and did the writing of some of those experiences, uh, attributing them to Ted, did that shape start to shape his character a bit or change his character? Yeah, because he's. After this accusation, he loses everything. His, his wife turns his back on him. Um, he's a policeman and all of his police friends are like, well, the evidence seems to suggest that you did this thing. Um, you know, and so he's alone out there in the wilderness and he really has to just rebuild everything from the ground up, you know. Um, and the first thing he does when he turns up in Crimson Lake is he's sitting around feeling sorry for himself and a family of geese turn up a mother and six goslings who have obviously been dumped um, in, near the cockerel infested waters and he's like, well, I guess we're in this together, you know, and, and they become a little family. And, um, yeah, it's great. It was great uh, writing about somewhere, you know, because I'm from Sydney. Sydney is sinister in a very obvious way. You know, you're like, where's the danger? There it is, it's like on the street corner, those terrible-looking scary dudes or you know, where's the danger? It's up there in King's Cross. But um, uh, for Cairns, it's more sinister, you know, in an underhanded kind of way. You see you see crocodile signs all the time, crocodiles, crocodiles, and you, you never see them. And you're like, they're there. It's a presence, a hidden presence. So, yeah. Maybe there are some people like that too that can yeah. <laughs> disappear and disappear others. Yeah. What about you, Robert? Your setting's quite different. Uh, my, my The plot for this current book and the... Um, the settings, if you like, uh, are kind of a no-brainer for me, having been in the visual art area my entire life as a painter, as Inga was saying earlier, you know, many, many exhibitions. So to write a book set inside the contemporary art world seemed like a, a, a fun thing to do. Um, we, we often, I come from Melbourne originally, and we'd have sort of large sort of arty party parties, and, mm -hmm. um, and the people would come along, I'd say, look, I'm writing this book about the, about the art world. And friends would say, oh, I've got a great story for you. Oh, what about that time we did so-and-so? You know, so I collected all these different stories. The art world, of course, is you've got your curators and your critics and your gallerists and your, your dealers and your wheelers and your auctioneers and your collectors and your, your, your wankers and your all, <laughs> you know, so many different people and, you know, so many different sorts of personalities. Um, it just struck me as a, a, the right opportunity to to produce a book that just tells that entire story, what happens on the inside, what goes on in artist studios and how they interact, etc. So I initially just thought I want three main protagonists. I want an old guy who's in his 80s. He's an abstract expressionist artist, a grumpy old fellow with one eye, which is a kind of a metaphor in itself. 
Then there's his son, Lawrence, who's a 45, 50-year-old, that sort of age bracket, and he's a conceptual artist, a performance artist. He's trying to reject everything that his father does, which is he's a painter, of course, so he's rejecting all of that. And then Lawrence has a young daughter in her early 20s who's a, 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 a painter again, um, which, which Lawrence is not pleased about at all, but, and she's producing these amazing large sort of portrait paintings that um, uh, the, 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 the thing that everybody's after, it's on the front of all the magazines and she's the, she's the hot new thing on the art scene. Um, so the, I just wanted to tell the story through those three people and all the things that sort of occur as a result of that. So is that without going too much further? Yeah, that's good. Karen? Um, well, setting um, is really central for me with all, all of my work and um, I'm a great lover of Australian landscape. So, yeah, um, I think that it's interesting the title of today's talk being Unforgettable Settings because I think, you know, everyone who lives down here or is in this region is here because they love um, being in a beautiful place. But in Australia these days we've become so urbanised and so um, centralised into cities that many of the times we have forgotten those beautiful places that we have. So in my writing I'm trying to bring people back to those incredible places um, that we are so fortunate to have into Australia, in Australia and help reconnect them. So my latest novel, um, The Orchardist's Daughter, not set in an orchard. It's a <laughs> Publishers choose interesting names for your books sometimes for marketing <laughs> reasons. Uh, it is, however, set in the tall old-growth eucalypt forests of southern Tasmania and the beautiful rugged mountains down there. And it's about three outsiders who are struggling to belong in this small timber town. So it's very much about... Um, about uh, the ways that people make connections, um, about communities, um, about the forests and the issues that the locals face uh, with uh, the, the greenies versus, it's not, not so political, didn't want to get bogged down in all that, but it is very much about our, the beautiful forests down there and for me, because it starts in setting, then the characters start to arise out of the landscape and then those characters and the lives they might live in that area actually drive the narrative and the plot and the journey, which um, in this case sort of led to quite a sort of almost a thriller type climax, which I wasn't expecting in the writing of this story before. You're blaming the landscape for that. Yeah. Oh, the landscape was, was quite fitting for that, that yeah. scene, yeah. yeah. Um, like is, does it depend on the genre how important setting is? I'm thinking of crime. Um, well, I reckon the setting's really hmm. the, the best part of crime writing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you feel that way? Is that one of the reasons you started writing it? It's look, uh, uh, it can be. I mean, um, as a crime writer these days, I have an excuse to do incredibly weird stuff. Um, you know, and researching setting is one of those things that you know I get to do. Um, my current novel, uh, for example, is set in LA, and my husband and I went over there and I said, I just want to get into the crime of LA, you know, like LA is so crimey. And I said to him, I've got three goals while I'm here. Um, I want to call 911. I want to shout, someone call 911. And I want to get pulled over by like a highway policeman with the aviators and the, and the tan outfit. And I had all three of those things done in six months. Um, <laughs> because we were there nice for work. a year. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's just... Um, like I went there and I just was open to crimey type things happening to me, you know, um, and uh, and it was great. And when you've got an eye out for that kind of thing, you know. Um, so so in the Crimson Lake series when I was living um, in Cairns and writing about Cairns, I had my eye out for like nefarious looking people and, you know, I'm just I'm just that sort of person anyway. I'm a big gawker and, and eavesdropper and I think you can um, – you can see, you can look through the lens. Like I could look at Milton and see, you know, a really uh -oh. crimey town. If I was looking through that lens, you know, if I was deliberately doing it, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I could see it. It would be a little bit like heartbeat or something. Like it would be the gentle, <laughs> the gentle someone stolen my bike type of crime. <laughs> I don't see serial killers or anything in this town, but you know what I mean? It's Sometimes it's know. a deliberate <laughs> yeah. act. Yeah, oh, you never know. You never know. And how is it collaborating with Patterson? Like um, different continents, different yeah. upbringing, different sense of the world and landscapes. How was it? How was it writing an Australian landscape with him? 
Yeah, it's good. I had some explaining to do about different things to him because, um, you know, he when we started our relationship writing together, he said uh, all, all he said about the, the, the book series was um, I want a strong male protagonist, which we didn't end up with. We ended up with a strong female protagonist. And he said, um, I want a setting within Australia that's not like a metropolitan city, like I'm a bit, I'm a bit bored of the glittering Sydney Harbour type of thing. I, everyone's seen that. And so I said, oh, you know, oh, well, I'm thinking about like the outback, um, you know, like a small outback town or maybe a FIFO mine or, you know, I said Navy ship, but I hope that he didn't say yes to that because I had a terrible time in the Navy. I get violently seasick. So that was sort of stage one of how badly that experiment went. Um, but, uh, yeah, he said, what's all this about a FIFO mine? Like, what is that? And, and this kind of thing. And I got into all the FIFO slang, like they call their the demountable buildings where they sleep at night, dongers. And he's like, what is a donger? <laughs> you got to explain this to me. And I was like, well, you know. Um, so, good, yeah, good. The, the answer is it's, it's so much fun to write with him. Um, and, you know, he's like a, a, a funny kind of uncle. He's, you know, full of jokes and you call his house and he pranks you and this kind of thing. And um, we've actually done the reverse. Our next book together is set in Boston. So I had to be like, what? Do you guys really have Jack Daniel's sauce on your chicken wings up there? Is that like, are you joking? He's like, no, no, I love some Jack Daniel's chicken wings and this kind of thing. So, yeah, it's good. He's a great guy. A cultural experience. Yeah. For both. both yeah. Clam chowder. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Robert, I was intrigued by um, what I would call more, much more conceptual spaces or landscapes in mm. your novel. <laughs> um, that they bring the three generations together. There's the family home, the art world creative process, the competition, um, and even I think it's Sean who describes his, the kind of place he goes to when he's creating. Mm. Um, mm. How do you capture, I mean you're a visual artist as yeah. well as a writer, <laughs> but how do you capture those type of landscapes, those inner yeah. landscapes on the page in a way that is engaging? But yeah, well that, that's the challenge of course. But it's interesting that we're doing settings where we're actually talking about settings because that is such so important to me. Um, I've really enjoyed um, you know, thinking a little bit about what I do in terms of setting. What's crucial for me, I think, is to try to have the reader right there in the room or in the studio or in the gallery or wherever, right there. So I, I spend a lot of time building a setting that people can, can, be, can identify with and can find themselves involved in. Um, so... I remember many years ago when I was writing my the Wild Man book, um, there was a this a fellow was running across the field, sort of he was being pursued by bound by people on on horseback. This is a historical novel, and um, my agent at the time, Curtis Brown, the girl from Curtis Brown, contacted me and she said, Robert, I don't really feel that I'm right there. I know where you, where you are, I know what the guy's doing, but I can't really feel myself in that in that situation. So I went back and revisited and realised that. You, you really need to, the nuances of the cicadas, you know, whirring and the grasshoppers clicking ahead of the person as he walks and the movement in the grass and things. You, you can create an environment like that that actually projects, transports the reader, if you like, right into that setting. You can put them right there. So, so all of those things that I, that I know those, those situations intimately, but it's important for me to somehow or other get that reader right there in that situation. And even like old Giles, he's a, he's a funny old fellow and he's got all sorts of issues and he's frail and everything, but he's a very interesting old man, I think. But I don't want the reader necessarily to be beside him. I want them to be inside him. So they're sort of seeing the world through that man and they can really form some sort of empathy with the person. So, so settings is crucial. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Giles, there's a couple of memorable scenes and houses, um, a wake um, mm. and a, a bit of a bonfire. Were they, were they some of these stories you collected along the way? Yeah, they are kind of stories along the way, yeah. Um, well, kind of. The, the book opens with this old fellow uh, at his wife's wake and he's standing looking at a mantelpiece with a picture of his wife sitting there and an early photograph of them at their wedding. And, of course, he's reminiscing about their life together and he looks down, there's a fireplace, and it hasn't been used for a long time. It's got lovely flowers in the fireplace. And he, he's one of these fellows that, that he, 
he's, he regards himself to be sort of outside the general populace. You know, he, he, he's a senior artist and thinks that he's so damned important. But for some unknown reason, he just feels like retaliating, so he pisses in the fireplace. And, of course, that upsets the entire room. All the guests are there, you know, to because his wife's just died. And they all just evaporate. They just leave the room. And in comes Sophie, who's his granddaughter. She's the other artist I was talking about. In comes Sophie, and she has to deal with this situation. So it, it's a lengthy story, but he says, why shouldn't I? If it's good for Jackson, it's good enough for me. He's talking about Jackson Pollock, who, in fact, in fact did like that pee in a fireplace. And uh, so he, and of course, Sophie, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. She thinks he's sort of also referring to the fact that he should be famous like Jackson Pollock as well, you know, and I can do these things. So w- this ongoing scenario, if she has to deal with that, she goes out into the backyard, she's got to find her father, Lawrence, who's the other artist, and, and so it goes on. So I try to create quite a lot of wit and humour uh, and carry the audience through that way. I think it's more memorable if there's, if there's some humour in a story, I think that becomes a more memorable um, sort of event. Certainly so, um, a memorable. Was the fire burning? No, no. Because no, 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 no wonder everyone evaporated if no. it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's no one there. So. Karen, I've noticed that in your books, um, those wild settings, particularly forests, seem to be where um, the characters tend to open up or find themselves. And I'm thinking of the orchardist's <laughs> daughter when Mickey and Kurt um, have pretty um, fractious relationship, but when they go for a walk in the forest, that's kind of the, one of the better moments that they have. Is that your own experience in nature with your with your kids or something? Like where does that help with you when you go for walks? Is that Where did that come from? Yeah, look, um, I definitely uh, connect best with myself when I'm in nature. I have those, you know, our, our lives are busy. Uh, we're very, we have flat out lives. We're very occupied with our jobs and our children if we have them and our careers and our social media and our phones and our, all of that technology and I think we stop, we forget to stop and slow down and breathe and look around us and those moments where I manage to escape, which is not as often as I'd like it to be, and have time to contemplate and reflect and think um, are really important to my spirituality, to my soul, or to my peace, uh, to my healing, to all of those things and, and so um, it, in inevitably that is also important to the characters in my novels and Mm. I'll just give you a little bit of background as to why that's important to this particular young woman Mickey who's 17 she's been homeschooled on an orchard um, in the Huon Valley uh, by her parents who've been trying to protect her from the world and then her parents have died through um, an accidental house fire and she's now living with her brother in a takeaway shop in this small town and he continues to have very tight control of her life under the guise of protecting her from the world but one of her few joys each week is when they go out to the forest and um, it's an escape for her and she feels great solace among the trees and um, in the old growth forest, I I defy anyone to to go out among very old trees and the mountain ash or the swamp gums, eucalyptus regnans uh, down in Tasmania and southern Victoria, are um, the old trees are 300 to 550 years old. You know, that's longer than much longer than any white Australians have been uh, in this country. And to stand beneath those amazing trees and look up and feel and smell and sense that, that feeling of being in the forest. And I defy anyone not to feel moved in, in that situation. And so that is important for my characters. And it is important for me. What I'm trying to do in my writing is to take the readers there, just as you're mm, saying, Robert, yeah. with the characters, to feel what it's like to be there, to hear the leaves shifting slightly in in the breeze to hear bits of bark slapping against the trunks of trees and and branches squeaking where they're rubbing against each other and rustlings Mm. in the understory and the smell of the rotting Mm. leaves but without giving you so much description that you feel bogged down in that but just little little nuances and hints to take you there and transport you there so not only are you in that place but you are relating to the the struggles the human struggles of the characters which Mm. we all have, you know, the good and the bad, so you will feel um, the, the traumas and the trials but also the triumphs and the joys of those characters mm-hmm. and, and I think that's really the art of writing, mm-hmm. isn't it, to take, mm-hmm. to take your, your readers with you but through yourself being transported with those characters as a writer. Yeah. yeah. And there's quite a, like in the town there's quite a lot of violence going on and then there's kind of this violence happening against the forest 
too. Were those things linked in your mind? Yeah, it's really interesting that you should say that because um, so the, the novel, um, I guess, has is, been described as being about um, various forms of domestic violence, which makes it sound really heavy because it's not only – this touches on physical domestic violence. There's been a lot of, of work in recent times which is great to talk about and bring those things into the open and discuss them more. But I also wanted to look at less visible forms of violence like psychological oppression, bullying, uh, financial control. But I didn't want, I mean, these are heavy and big topics, but I didn't want to do it in a heavy way. I wanted it to be about empowerment and, and how we can reach out and help people in, in those circumstances, not to make light of it, of it because these things are difficult, but also, um, but really just to, to start conversations and to help us in our realisation that we possibly can help just by being there, I guess, and, and offering support. But your suggestion about there being a link, perhaps it's more of a parallel because where violence takes place um, against other people, you know, it's in similar in some ways to what's going on um, w when we over-harvest the forest, when we harvest trees, knock trees down too quickly um, with you know, mechanisation and to feed a, a wood chip industry. In that in both forms of violence, as, as you might refer it, you know, there's a sense of ownership and entitlement and I guess a form of aggression. I was thinking about whether there's respect involved and I wouldn't say that loggers don't respect the forest necessarily. Ma many of them would have say that they, they loved the forest. But there is, you know, damage done in both scenarios and also um, a, a lasting impact. You know, it takes people forever, the whole lifetime with help, I guess, to recover from situations of, of domestic uh, violence and domestic abuse. And there's increasing scientific evidence of the long-lasting impact on our forests of over-harvesting, like, you know, animals that were common 20 years ago are now um, threatened with extinction. And we also now know that, that locking in, cutting the forest so quickly and locking in younger-age trees makes the forest more fire-prone, which means we are going to be having more big bushfires like Black Saturday and like they've had in Tasmania, threatening human lives in order to sustain a, a wood chip industry and, you know, lack of regeneration. So, yes, I think there are interesting parallels there that I had not thought of before. Woohoo! Good question. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> that's good, that's good. That's, the, that's, the that's a good question. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, Crimson Lake, you know, you described... There's lots of dangers lurking around, crocodiles. I mean, even Ted's house is a site of violence, always being graffitied and egged or whatever attacked. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like a pretty dangerous place. But um, even though he's he's not from there, he does – he and Amanda, I want to talk you to talk about the partnership with um, Ted and Amanda. You know, they're kind of these outsiders um, and it's not a friendly climate in any sense. Mm. Uh, and yet somehow they form this partnership and – despite all the threats, they seem kind of most comfortable outside together. Yeah. Even yeah. though they travel separately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they have to travel separately because Amanda doesn't do cars, so she rides a bicycle everywhere they go and he, you know, it's, it's very inconvenient and annoying for him. Um, yeah, I think in that series I was trying to explore, um, you know, being deeply, deeply unpopular. I've always been terribly, terribly unpopular um, Look at the know. audience. <laughs> well, <laughs> crazy. I, I mean, uh, you know, historically, um, as a kid, I, I I grew up in this very strange household. Um, my mother had four kids, and then she adopted two, and then she fostered 155 kids while I was growing up. Yeah, <laughs> is that possible? Yeah, <laughs> she could have. Well, she had six, and then she could have six more at a time inside this house. And um, you know, so I'm going to school. I'm going in a mini bus because we don't have a family car and, you know, everyone's constantly got head lice and I'm bringing kids to school all the time and I'm like, hey, this is Charlie. His parents have just been arrested for armed robbery. Uh, he may be here for weeks to months, so we have to be his friend, you know. And so, like, I, I just was just this freak at school. People were like, what is your life, you know? My dad walk, worked in a prison um, my mom has, uh, rec in recent years discovered that, um, her authentic self deep inside is that she's a mermaid. Um, so she, uh -oh. she legally changed her name to Ocean Mermaid a couple of years ago. And, you know, so I just, I have always felt like this, this person surrounded by this hostile environment, you know, and, 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 uh, 
you know, and it was the same when I was in the Navy. I joined the Navy because I think I looked at the promotional material and everybody's in the same uniform. Everyone looks the same. Everyone's facing the same way with their guns. And I was like, hey, I'm going to fit in there. I'll fit right <laughs> in, right? You know, not so much. Um, you know, and uh, I was an outsider there too as well. You know, in, in the Navy, um, you get yelled at all day long even if you're doing the right thing. That's just how naval officers talk is they shout at you. And um, mm. I have this terrible affliction where if anyone's mean to me in any way, I burst into tears. Um, so <laughs> That went down well. But yeah, <laughs> with the seasickness and the constant crying. and yeah, the, a lot of respect. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that kind of thing. So I like hostile environments for my, um, for my characters because I think it's just added pressure, you know, Ted in these books, he's got this terrible accusation, and he's he's wearing this face. Everyone knows what everyone knows who he is. And um, Amanda uh, is kind of his, you know, like a how sometimes a racehorse will have a little goat as a friend. She's like that little spirited goat. Um, she kind of doesn't care that she's deeply unpopular. You know, she wears it on her skin. She's covered in tattoos. And um, she she killed her um, high school friend. She stabbed her friend to death as a teenager and everyone knows that. And she's like, well, you know, it happened. Um, and she still lives in the town and, you know, she just kind of wears her unpopularity whereas Ted is still trying to get used to it, you know. Um, clear his name. And clear his name, yeah, yeah. And so this series is about the two of them kind of banding together and discovering who they are. And um, I wish I... I was going to say I wish I had a little goat, but I think I would be the little goat to somebody else's racehorse, um, you know. But, um, yeah, that's for me as a crime writer discovering, you know, because I feel, I feel uh, like I fit in among these people. Maybe not so much other crime writers, but um, uh, I'm going to name drop. Um, I was talking to Lee Child recently. And yeah, nice, when, he nice. was in, <laughs> when he was in Australia, I hosted him in Sydney. He was here in November. And he said, you know what I love about doing writer's gigs um, with the public is you look out there and everybody looks really nice and civilised and friendly and all this kind of thing. Um, but every single one of them, particularly if you're at a crime event, every single one of them has 10 people in their life that they would gleefully see hit by a bus. <laughs> 10. Yeah, I was like, I said only 10. Um, but he, uh, Did you have a big family? Yeah, and I, that's how I feel among, among readers yeah. and crime readers. Uh, you know, um, people want to stop me afterwards and talk about serial killers and this and that and bodies and, and that kind of thing. And I'm just like, these are my people. I fit. I fit in. You, know? <laughs> so. you, you made your own life. Yeah. Wrote your own life. Yeah. Hey, this is a bit of a wild card. I found a commonality between all of your books and it's birds. Um, yeah. You have your geese. Your books, Crimson Lake series, has the geese. Um, Karen, the eagles are pretty significant in yours, but less so than mammals turning up at the vets. Um, and mallards. Mallards. <laughs> so what's going on with setting and birds? Yeah, you know, is, is that yeah, a role? All, all through my art geese. as well. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Birds, yeah. really. birds are part of the landscape. Birds yeah, the landscape. A lot of the time people are hooked into their you know, music and they're not noticing the birds, but you just go mm. for a walk down the street, there are birds everywhere, yeah. native and non, and yeah. you can remind people about that. Mm. Oh, and they're, just, yeah, they're part of the, the auditory landscape as well, aren't they? Yeah. Why are the eagles in well, they're symbolic because um, Mickey, as we were expl as explaining, has a very restricted life and the wedge-tailed eagles that she sees in the Tasmanian forest, which are endangered down in Tasmania, they're symbolic of the freedom she doesn't have and going by and seeing the, um, the eagle chick in the nest looking out on the world, she, um, before it, it fledges, she wonders how the bird knows the right time to go uh, because she doesn't know herself how she can free herself and when is the right time to, how does the bird know that it can step out of the nest and fly? And so, oh, that's giving me goosebumps. <laughs> and the mallard? Well, the mallard, again, is a, it's a metaphor for something else, I guess. But um, I'd like to go a little bit lateral for a moment, if I could, explaining about settings, what's important to me about settings. Um, I, I came across the other day, my eyes fell upon a little book um, by Ernest Hemingway called The Old Man and the Sea. Have you read that book? Yes. Gorgeous little thing written 70 years ago, which he won the Nobel Prize for. Um, beautiful little book, but the, 
the, it's, it's all about the tale, the fable, and setting really doesn't come into it much, apart from the fact that you're out on the ocean and he's caught this big fish that's dragging him all over the ocean. On the back of the book, it says, set uh, in the Gulf Stream um, off the shores of Havana. They write that on the back of the book, but it doesn't actually mention any of that in the book or the fish, what sort of fish it is. <laughs> he's in a little skiff, but we don't know anything about it at all. So it's all about the fable, all about the tale. For me, if I was going to write that book, <laughs> if I was going to rewrite it, I would want to develop the setting. I would want to, if he's in a little boat, um, what is it painted? Is it wooden, first of all? Some more specificity? Yeah, all of the detail. You know, what colour is it? Um, are there fish scales stuck to the side of the gunnel thing? Is there is an oil slick in the bottom of the... You know, every little detail so that the reader actually is right there. Aren't right you there, there though? I am completely there in that yeah. novel. Well, but yeah. it appears yeah. in It's every book, book. every yeah, fish, yeah. every gorgeous. ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but for me, as a, I guess um, a humanist realist sort of writer, I really want the nuance. I want the detail. It's a thin, thin little book. And as, as, as we know, it's a fable. It's a or a tale, if you like. It's a story. Um, it's a fabulous book. You're quite right. Yeah. Um, but I, I can sort of see. I would want to know what about the old man. You know, what, what about his background? Where's he come from? Why is he a fisherman? Has he had a relationship? So it's already twice as long if you were writing it. Twice. <laughs> 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 so I, I would build this big scenario. That's just me. So that's what I'm saying. That's why setting interests me because yeah, I would build this great, yeah. huge thing. It might might not work, but that's that's the way. So, I do you to have work. to really know a place to write about it? Can you do it in a three month trip to LA? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you definitely have to know about the place. You have to know. You have um, to be there. I mean, you know, my father was a professional fisherman for a little while. I spent a lot of time in boats. My brother's a yachty, sails around the Sunday Islands. He's up there right now, somewhere out there. And I've been with him for months on on the water. So, I think you do need to know it. But once you do know it, I mean, a lot of people, yeah, I guess you know about boats. Maybe you don't, but if you didn't know about boats, you, you then, you know, I'd love to be able to just sort of show that space. Um, Edward St. Auburn is a, fa- is a, is a, fab- is a um, terrific writer, I think. He's one of my favourites. And he does that. He just takes you right into the nuance and, and you really, you just go, wow, you know, I really feel that space, you know. Anyway, that's my settings. I hoped you were going to talk about mallards because mallards, <laughs> there's one thing Come I on. know about mallard ducks and that's that they have a spiral-shaped penis, oh, which I think is well, really well, the sort of detail you well, would latch on. I was going like to say, the... hey, I knew that. Hey, um, I didn't know that. All, is that all ducks or just mallards? Uh, it's it's pigs. It's, it's pigs. Yeah, that have pigs. The, sorry, it's I'm a vet. Don't bring pigs. a vet to a writer's festival. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's pigs that have the spiral penis. I really didn't anticipate this term. <laughs> anyway. I really want to know about those geese because they're great. Like, oh, where did they come from? I yeah. love it. Well, I've all, birds have always been terribly important to me. My mum, you know, is a bit of a rescuer. She was rescuing all those children. She would do the clean-up and pick up all sorts of stuff from the clean. Her house is full of, like, crazy stuff. Like, she has a mannequin next to the TV set dressed up as a bride and she has a full-size nightclub disco ball in her kitchen that's hung so low you've got to lean around it, you know, to do anything in the kitchen. Um, but when we were growing up, she was a big animal rescuer, you know, inappropriate animals at times. Like, we had... This, this backyard, it was full concrete because she hates grass um, in Bankstown, which is quite urban, with these man-sized kangaroos hanging out there in the backyard. And she would do all animals except birds, um, you know, because mostly they weren't worth her effort. Mostly they would die. They're a bit flaky. And so she would, <laughs> she would say, oh, Candace, young Candace, you know, I'm five or six years old. She's like, here you go, have this injured bird you know, and you can get involved, which is an odd parenting decision, you know, because I'm like, I'll take care of it and it will be fine and, and it'll survive. And mum's like, yeah, good luck, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, I had a lot of dead birds in my childhood. Yeah, and uh, I still rescue birds today because, um, you know, and I write about them because I know what it feels like to have a panicked bird in your hands and mm. and, and birds just suddenly appear every time I am near. But um, injured, you know. Oh, like, that sounds like a song. Yeah. <laughs> injured though, like I was doing a, recently I was doing a writer's gig at, at Mossman in Sydney and I'm like, ooh, Mossman. Um, but I turned up there, I turned up there and there were all these youths out the front, like scary looking youths with, with um, 
lank, greasy hair and big shoes and stuff. And I was like, immediately I was like, oh, I feel old. But then also I have to walk past all these young people and they were wrestling each other and stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. It was nighttime, you know, and to get into the library in Mossman Library. Not the Mossman you're expecting. No. And, well, see, I went – see, by the time I walked past them, I was like wincing. I'm like, I hope they don't say anything about how lame I am or something. And and I heard one of them go, oh, man, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know anything about birds and all this. And I looked over and all their big shoes were crowded around this little pigeon. And I said, oh, what's happening, everyone? And they said, oh, this pigeon's sick and we don't know what to do and all this. And, and they were all kind of so, like, distressed. And I said, oh, actually, don't worry. I know exactly what to do. I know about birds and, and this kind of thing. And, and I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it. And they said, well, how are we going to know if the pigeon was okay? Uh, I said, well, you can follow me on Instagram if you like <laughs> and I'll, I'll let you know, you know. And so all these like really punky kids with these amazing selfies with like pink hair and all that started popping up on my Instagram and it was just it was just great. I felt so bad. I totally misjudged them and then I rock into Mossman Library and they're like, hello, we're the librarians of Mossman. And, and I was like, hello, I have this disgusting scabby pigeon um, that I just picked up out the side. Do you guys have a box? And they were like, why, of course, we'll give you a box, you know, anything for Candace Fox. And, and, they, <laughs> and, and they let me put it out the back in their office and all this. And I was like, Mossman, you rock, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but that kind of good. thing happens all the time with me. With birds. and how yeah. did the pigeon go? Yeah, fine. Yeah, oh. I gave it to my. I have a, a pigeon specialist. I gave it to her. She's um she's an odd sort of creature. She does non-native rescues because I couldn't have it at my house. Um, she's got big orange beehive hair, and she's talking about how all all animals are God's creatures and all this. And she had four ibises living in her bathtub. <laughs> This kind of stuff, mm. and bird, oh, bird yeah. people. When we see each other, we're like, "Yeah, we're weird." The um, geese bird. are just such lovely, constant companions for poor old Ted. Ted, yeah. yeah, I love geese. I'm one of those weird people who I don't have any kids yet. There's one in here, um, but I, I don't Ooh. have any. I don't have any outside me at the moment. But I go to petting zoos and and reserves and that kind of thing all the time. And then all the kids they're there patting the animals, and I'm like. Oh, when you're finished with that goat, I'd really love to pat it, you know. I don't want to push kids out of the way. Sometimes I'll, like, hip barge them out of the way. But you know what? I was standing there and no one was patting the geese. I was like, I'll pat those geese, you know, and then they were just really lovely and I thought, you know what, I think I'll put them in a book. Hmm. Yeah. Very good. Uh, I, got, I, got, I knew lovely I'd get story. it out of you. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Karen, this is familiar territory for you, animals turning up in a box um, and a few animals in boxes usually end up turning up in your stories too. Can you? Is it something just happens when you start writing? Um, or was you referring to the Tasmanian devils in this? No. Dog has multiple visits to the vet. Oh, well, And yeah. the vet's kind of nice. Vets are nice. <laughs> <laughs> she took the buying from she personal took the experience. <laughs> You're like... This bed is kind of nice. Oh, I was being a little bit. The, the human-animal bond is something that really fascinates me. You know, it's it's yeah. uh, has for so long, and I've worked with, been lucky enough to work with both domestic and um, wild animals. And certainly with domestic animals, it is true that many many clients and owners end up looking. At looking like their pets I'm not sure which one evolves to look like the other but sometimes when people leave the vet clinic I say did you, did you see that like Very true. <laughs> they really Very true. did look alike yep. but yep. the more time I spend around animals and people the more I see how important that connection is and um the, the ways you know not just what animals give us and what we give animals but the way humans connect through animals as well through it, each other and and also with with wild animals like in in this book, The Orchard Distorter, Mickey's other great joy is going to the tip once a week, which you wouldn't think was exciting um, because it's smelly and disgusting. But at this local tip is where the Tasmanian devils, there's a, a small population there. And um, one of them has a sore on its face. And, and this is a way of trying to inform people about facial tumour disease and, and how it's decimated Tasmanian devil populations in Tasmania. But, yeah, look, you know, animals, yep, they're a big part of my life um, and they're an incredibly important thing. There's a lovely scene in this book too that I have to talk about where 
one of the dogs that's just been to the vet because it's been found on the on the road in the forest with a cut in its side and this lovely ranger leon picks the dog up takes because he's his neighbor's dog and his neighbors aren't home takes it to the vet gets it stitched up and he has to drop into the old people's home to visit his grandpa on the way back and after the, paying the vet bill for the neighbors because they don't have much money this is an undesexed female dog that's pregnant um, and he knows that, you know, he asked if they could have it spayed at the time to prevent the inevitable. Anyway, when he gets to the old people's home, uh, the dog's got the cone of shame because <laughs> we use those because we have to. We don't like it. We know it's awful for people and their pets, but they're necessary sometimes. But the dog won't stay in the car and has got this cone of shame on. And Anyway, he gets the cone off and he has to take the dog in. And it's a wonderful scene that I really didn't plan where he, the dog goes in and, and into a room where there's a whole lot of, of people, infirm older people, sitting in their chairs and it's the absolute highlight of the day. The dog goes up and meets everybody and and it has such a great spiritual, important impact on all those people to have connection with animals. And and that was a scene I didn't plan. And as it mm. wrote itself, I was, it was just so exciting because I thought, yes, this is so important. It's mm. so wonderful. They're always the most mm. fun, the ones you did not plan. Mm. Um, you've moved back here, Robert, or moved here moved to this here. beautiful place. Has that mm. changed your writing or, or your artwork for that matter? Pretty big change it's of scene. Yeah, it's had an effect on my artwork, I suppose. Not so much my writing. With what is really lovely about this country, I think, and with the contemporary, you know, modern technology and everything, you can live anywhere. You can absolutely live anywhere. And if you want, if it's writing that you interests you, then it doesn't really. This, this, I don't think the setting makes a lot of difference. Like. You're lock, usually locked away in a little room somewhere, so you know, you know, it's more of a distraction than anything. You look out the window, oh, look at the lake today. I think I might go for a row or go fishing or something. So it's, it, you really need to, I need to lock myself away, okay. and you could be anywhere at all. But I really love what you were saying before, Karen, about um, how a scene suddenly finds itself, how it just appears, and it's such a lovely thing. It comes obviously directly from your own experience, but it's really lovely the way you can begin to write, and suddenly the, it opens up into a into a into a into a setting into a into a story that you just didn't you didn't even know about did you it's, it's almost like it's always been there and it just needed you to kind of type it onto the page well and if you're sort of in the middle of the writing process like that that scene has a lot of resonance mm. for the characters you know the, the dog is a bit like the old folks and a bit limited in their movement and, you know it carries mm. more weight mm. so it's like it from our own experience yeah but maybe from the Unconscious a bit too, you know. Parts yeah, of the novel yeah. starting to yeah. try and find their own way together, which is handy mm. yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I wish it yeah. happened more often. Yeah, 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 yeah. they're the good yeah. days. Hey, um, I think we need to open up for questions from the audience. Thank you. Um, thanks very much, everyone. I just wonder: Are you familiar with the term architect or gardener in terms of writing styles and processes? I'm hearing. Each of you say little things about things that surprise you about your writing or things that take you by surprise. How much are you planned before you start and sort of know what novel you're writing and how much is it a, a surprise to you and develops as it goes along? The gardener thing is going along and weeding and landscaping what's there, what comes out, and the architect is the planning beforehand. Mm. The gardening sounds like the editing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm a very I'm not an architect at all. I have a tendency to let the story find its own level. Once I've got the characters, they tend to they tend to find all sorts of interesting things to do, and I'm quite surprised sometimes. And you get right through two thirds of the way through the novel, and you think, oh, that's why that happened. Because back there he was doing so and so. Somehow it just, it seems to it all comes out of there. Yeah, all out of there. And and I really do feel sometimes that the story was always there, and it just needed someone to me to. Yeah, to, to, to nurture it and pull it out. Exactly, that's the gardening thing. I'm very architectural. Uh, <laughs> James and I, when we work together, we work off a very detailed blueprint so we know exactly where, what's happening and um, and this kind of thing. And uh, he likes it, an outline and sometimes those outlines is like 17,000 words, you know, and the novel mm. itself is only 70 by comparison. So mm. um, it's good. Sometimes I like to tear walls down and smash things out and, and that surprises him, um, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. I recently um, knocked off a, a, a friend of his that he had put in the novel. He was like, oh, I got this friend and I'm going to put him in the novel and I've told him about it and everything and I'm like, I don't 
get this character and I just I just killed him in a really gruesome, horrible way. <laughs> Stabbed him in the back. And I sent it back and <laughs> That's Jim was collaboration. Like, wow, I have some explaining to do now. Thank you so much. Um, but, yeah, for my own work, I, pl- I like to plan less, um, particularly the ending. I just like to send everyone into the same environment at the ending and then see who comes out alive. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's, it's surprising for me and then hopefully surprising for you because I think otherwise I foreshadow things too yeah. much and, um, mm. and it kind of thing. I, I do a little bit of planning. Um, I need to do that to get mm. a feel for the characters yeah. and to yeah. have a bit of a feel yeah. where the story might go or the narrative might take me. Yeah. But if, um, if in the process, the, the, one of the great joys of writing is when you, you can have a plan and you start to write. And if you stick to that plan, it feels really boring to me. It mm. loses its energy. Mm. But sometimes you sort of get caught up with what's going on and then the character takes this deviation. And I always go with those deviations, even if they don't stay in later. Mm. Because often in that unplanned stuff where it, it just takes off is where the energy starts to appear in the writing exactly. and the and the unexpected develops in the plot, which is still, um, still reasonable. You know, it's not mm. like so far-fetched that it's not going to happen. So... I don't like to be – I did try that planned thing because a couple of times I've had to do massive rewrites, um, like completely rewrite my novels um, because they weren't working and my publisher was you know, quite frank in pointing that out to me and after I'd picked up my pieces and had to rewrite, I thought, right, next time I'm going to plan it. But then I looked at the plan and I just thought, oh, yeah. I feel tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. might work. So, yeah. yeah, then I went on to another idea with energy. So not, I don't like too much planning. Great question. Thank you. Any other great questions? Another great question down here. Oh. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it, all three of you. Candice, I'm intrigued to know how did you get this collaboration going with oh. James? With my wit and stunning good looks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I well no I well I was invited to I had written three novels on my own and I was invited to this cocktail party and it was like oh James Patterson is in Australia and he's having a cocktail party come along I was like oh how did I get invited to this you know because I didn't feel like I was part of the thing the community um and so I went and I thought to myself you know I'm just going to have my little fan moment with this guy because I'd been sneaking into my mum's bedroom to read her, her everything that was in there you know she's a huge crime fiend um since I was a little kid and you know so I put a dress on and heels and I got my hair done because I don't often go to parties and I, I got a full head of foils and a cut and blow dry which in Sydney is about three hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> And so I was like, no matter what happens, he's going to see this hair. <laughs> and he walks in and there's, a, uh, you know, big writers in America like, like him, there's this kind of like celebrity feeling about them. And so he walks into the room and everyone just turned away and was like, oh, my God, there he is, don't look. And I was like, there he is. You know, <laughs> I just have no subtlety whatsoever. Um, and so I just thought he's not going to be here for long. He's not going to be the last guy at the party. You know, he, he's, I've got a limited amount of time and all these people were swirling around him like little planets. And I thought I'm just going to have to crash in there like an asteroid if I'm going to get this done. And so I, I went over and I was like, excuse me, excuse me, I know you're very important, excuse me. Um, and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, James, it's me, it's Candace Fox. Um, I'm a writer here in Australia. And um, I've got three novels out and I reckon I write crime, you know, in a good part because of you because I read all your books when I was a kid. I read Kiss the Girls when I was 12 years old. What do you think about that? And he goes, that's really inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was your mum doing when you were reading Kiss the Girls at 12 years old? And I was like, don't even... (laughs) <laughs> don't get me started um and we just had a little chat then yeah and um uh there had actually been a list of people ahead of me to collaborate with him i'm told i don't know who's on that list but every now and then when i meet someone who hates me intensely and i don't know why i figure it was yeah, there on the list, on that list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um and uh, they put my uh, first novel in a book pack for him to go home and they've obviously put it on the top because he read it on the plane home to florida and then they call, he called up and he said, oh, I want to talk to this Candace Fox character. Um, okay. He must so have been the hair. It was <laughs> definitely yeah, good investment. It was really good. It mm. was some good hair, yeah. Mm. But, um, 
So we started from that and then I, I got really ambitious and I, I, we did the outline for the novel and everything and I stole the ending and I left the ending open and I was like, so that in the next novel that we do together, we can resolve that. And he was like, I know a business lady when I see one. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. We've done like five full uh, four and a novella and then our fifth comes out soon. So, yeah, fun, fun yeah. stuff. Thank you. Um, I've got a question for Karen. Um, in reading your work, it seems to me that you like to have the landscape as one of the characters. Would would that be an accurate observation of your work? Yeah, I, I think that um, that yeah that has been um, suggested before, and the, the the presence of the landscape is so important, um, and the moods of the landscape and the moods of the weather and how that reflects the emotional journeys of the characters as well. That's sort of something that I try to sort of thread through there without doing it too obviously so that presence is is really important to the novel and the connection with the, of the people with the landscape and of their their life journeys so yeah the, the landscape would definitely be so you know I had the uh, my first novel was set on the south coast um uh, about whales and um and recovery from loss and the, the sea is and and the, the coastal landscapes are very important and then Tasmania was the lightkeeper's wife was Antarctica and um, and Bruni Island with the lighthouse, which is a stunning place as well. Yeah. Um, those windswept landscapes are – I love weather um, and I don't mind bad weather, though I've been moaning about the cold today, <laughs> which is a bit pathetic, but when you're dressed up, you know, you're not prepared for the cold. Mm. One you. more quick one. It seems to me that I'm wondering whether you used stereotypical, you know, when you went to Los Angeles for three months and you said, yeah, I'm going to make a 911 call, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, do you base some of your stuff on on media around crime generally and stereotypical consequences of those? Yeah. And then one more question just quickly. How many crimies do you observe in here? Oh. (laughs) I don't know. Crime lovers, you know, they can look like anything. You can't sort of – sometimes they're the friendliest people in the room and, you know, like it's an old lady with a crocheted shawl and she's like, let's talk about that young Ted Bundy, you know, or something. Um, you never know who you're going to get. But uh, but do I base it on real crimes? Yes, I do at times. Um, uh, the Gone by Midnight is a, a book in which um, four young boys are left in a hotel room while their parents go downstairs for dinner and the parents come up and check every hour and um, the, the fourth time they check, one of the boys is missing. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's very Madeline McCanny. Um, and that was what inspired me. But sometimes, you know, it's just things that, like crimey sorts of things that happen around me. Um, for example, I was in my local IGA and uh, um, my husband was there. He'd split off to fill a trolley with stuff. And I'm there and um, the, uh, this woman at the counter is quite near me burst into tears and uh, everyone was staring at her and I wasn't far enough, I wasn't close enough to understand what she was saying but she was going like this, you know, like around here, you know, and, and sort of panicking and I looked down and there's this two-year-old boy looking up at me like, hey, you're not my mum. And I was like, oh, I think I know what's happening here and I'm not a terribly subtle person at the best of times. So when I see a situation where I can be the hero of the day, I'm like, I need to make the most of this. So I grabbed the child and I held him up in the air like, you know, like the baboon at the start of The Lion King. Um, and I was like, I said, there's a boy right here. And everyone turned around and they were like, oh, you know, and their mother was like, oh, and she came and got the kid off me and all that. And uh, it occurred to me um, as I was standing there, mentally congratulating myself that um everyone had got involved in that like everyone in proximity was like um everyone stopped what they were doing to see this thing uh, to its Mm. end and and so i just went bang that's the crime for my next novel but yeah i mean i i i do what i can to be um as up you know with with crime as i can be i visit serial killers and i you know, I go to murder sites if I happen to be around one and I, you know, I just live that kind of life, you know. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. On that note, we're <laughs> out of time. <laughs> Thank you.
If you'd like to know more about StoryFest, head on over to their website, www.storyfest.org.au, or check them out on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode of Rights for Festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals to hear all the other episodes and festivals we have to offer. We have done a few, so check them all out there. You can also um, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google or wherever you get your pods. Please do give us a rating and review wherever you're getting your pods from um, because it does actually let everybody else find out about us too. So let all the other festival goers know that if you can't get to some of these festivals, you can actually catch them all here on Rights for Festivals, the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting Australian writers and writing festivals. Catch you next time. This podcast episode was produced, recorded and edited by me, Kel Butler, at Listen Up Podcasting. Podcast for a positive world. <laughs>